Welcome to the Durham Book Festival. My name is uh, Caroline Beck, and um, I'm delighted to introduce you to Rachel Joyce. We're going to be talking about her book, The Music Shop. And actually, when I first read the opening pages of The Music Shop, which I think is your fourth novel, um, I had a slight prickle on the back of my neck, as if my diaries from the 1980s might have accidentally fallen into her hands. Um, because I used to visit a music shop down a back street in the cathedral city where I was once living and spent hours and hours flicking through random LPs in those great days when an algorithm didn't tell you what you should be listening to. And in fact, this is where Rachel's novel starts with Frank, the music shop owner, who gets his customers much better than he gets himself. And just as we're settling down into that nice easy rhythm of the music shop and its casts of misfits, two things come along to completely disrupt it. A young German woman who faints outside the shop and some shady developers who threaten to force Frank's shop off the street. So it's a story about the necessity of music in all our lives and how music can affect us when everything else has broken down. But it also charts a decline in our high streets where independent shops run by independent people are forced out by faceless moneymakers with very deep pockets. So Rachel, welcome. Um, I wanted to ask you, first of all, where did the idea of the music shop come from? Because it sounds so personal. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you might have visited that music shop when you were about 17? Yeah, it's partly. Although, actually, I bought most of my records, I think, from Woolworths. Oh. Um, uh, and uh, I don't really remember listening booths specifically, but this shop that I've made up is the sort of shop, I think, where I sort of dream about going, you know, where you go in and the owner really just gets you, and he knows better than you do what you need. Um, to listen to. Oh, to uh, so he is actually a kind of healer, really, is the idea. that he. So you, at the beginning of the book, there's a man who goes in who wants Chopin. And Frank, who just has a way of listening to people, uh, sort of hears a kind of music in them, by which I really mean that he has a strong empathy with other people. But because he's so musical, it translates itself into music. So this customer comes in who looks a little bit broken, um, doesn't really say anything about himself, but says he wants to buy Chopin because he always buys Chopin. And Frank just listens to him and he says, mm, no, what you need today is Aretha Franklin. <laughs> and, and so he takes him to the back of the shop where he has these sort of wonderful booths and, he, and this man listens to Aretha Franklin and because it's fiction, we can suddenly go in the booth with him so we know why he is the way he is and we feel what Aretha Franklin does for him. So it is a sort of fictitious shop. But having said that, it sort of came about a long time ago because ideas for me do sort of just percolate, really, over a very long period. And it really began when um, my husband and I moved out of London about 14 years ago to Gloucestershire. And very quickly, uh, my husband found that he couldn't sleep at night. I don't know whether it was because it was just so kind of blissful and peaceful, mm -hmm. I'm not sure. But anyway, too he, he, yeah, too quiet. Uh, and we tried all the things that you try to, to help you sleep, and none of it worked. Um, but because he is, he's a very musical uh, person. He was a musician as a young man, so we... Um, we ended up in our local, and the nearest kind of record shop for us was in Cheltenham. And uh, we were in that shop, and Paul just happened to say to the owner that he couldn't sleep. 
I don't really know why, because I don't remember the owner asking him if he could sleep. But um, <laughs> Paul did mention it. And the owner said, oh, well, I think I know what you need. And he went away and found a CD. And at this point, about six other people in the shop all said, oh, we can't sleep at night either. <laughs> so it was a very good sales day for the owner. They all went away with the music. And the, the magical thing is, and this is where life is brilliant, it worked. He slept. What was the piece of music? Well, it's in the book. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to tell you because you're all being very nice. So it is, um, it's a piece of music. It's very, very short. It's by a French Baroque composer. And I've just got to say the music in the book is not all classical. It's a kind of wide genre. It's everything. But this is a classical piece. It's a song, uh, unaccompanied, and it's just a human voice. And it's sublime because... This is how I feel anyway. I listen to it and it just goes up. And you think this really can't go any higher. It's so beautiful. And then it drops. And then it lifts and it goes even higher. And I think that the reason it made Paul sleep is that it is so beautiful. And it's so brave. And it just kind of reminds you of the bravery of human beings. You know, there is good which is quite a good thing to be reminded of at the moment. So I think for those reasons, Paul slept. So anyway, this shop became very special to us, and Paul, who wasn't at the time very interested in classical music, kind of went on a journey with this shopkeeper through classical music. And then, you know, lots of other things happened, and we didn't go back for a little while. And when I was starting to write the book, I thought, I've got to go back to the shop and see the man who runs it and tell him. And... Uh, it had gone. Oh. In that time, it had gone. Uh, and it was, um, it felt really sad. And I, I felt, why didn't I look after that shop? I really liked that shop. So that then, again, kind of really spurred me into um, to writing it. So Frank, who is the music shop owner, he yeah. is, he's quite sort of an unlikely healer, really, isn't he? Is. he? Because he's sort of bit large, bit shambolic, yeah. he yeah. wears plimsolls with his laces hanging out all yeah, the time. Yeah. And he's got, he's got no real self-awareness at all, which no. we'll go on to talk about. But also, but he's got this great sort of empathy when mm -hmm. it comes to music. Mm -hmm. And he does this fantastic thing where he sends people away into the listening booth. Yeah. So it's not just giving them a CD, is it? No. He actually puts the, you know, the headphones on them yeah, yeah. and they get that very kind of intimate experience. And I think the novel is incredibly good at at sort of saying what's going on when the music is playing in their heads, but also in their hearts as yes. well. Yes, yes. And, and was that quite difficult to write? Because when you're explaining music, it can be a bit like explaining a joke. The minute you've yeah. said it, the yeah. magic goes. Yeah, I found that as I was trying to write it. And uh, for me, I felt I really wanted to write a book about music, and I'm not a musician. Um, I don't, I don't play. So my approach to music has to be kind of inclusive. It has to be for everybody. That was how I wanted to write it. And it also had to be that if you don't like music, it doesn't matter, because I think by the end there might be some music that you do like. Um, but in order to do that, I had to keep rooting the music in ordinary people and emotions, relationships, things that we all understand. I mean, partly also because that's what you know, interests me, is the effect on, of this music, these different pieces of music, on, on these different people that become part of Frank's little community, really. 
And in fact, these people who surround Frank, don't they? Yeah. Like a sort of you know protective blanket, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are fantastic misfits, aren't they? they I are. wondered if you could uh, read a little bit from the book. So let's talk about Maud because Maud actually is it's not giving the game away to say that Maud, you know, she's she's a bit of a misfit, but she's in love with Frank, isn't she? She is, and, and a he little bit. Know. No, he doesn't. So I'm just going to read a little bit about Maud. But Maud is somebody uh, in this little parade of shops on this street, which is a kind of very run-down street in a city uh, called <coughs> Unity Street. But there are five other shops on the parade, and Frank's record shop is in the middle. Then there's a, a religious artifacts shop. There's a tattoo salon run by Maud. And there's also a funeral parlor run by two old men who sometimes hold hands. And then there's a pub on the corner. And sort of gradually you realize that these shops are all under threat, you know, and which is going to go first. But Maud is really, really tough. And uh, I like writing quite tough. I like writing quite foul-mouthed women, actually. I think because I'm not, really. <laughs> and when I do swear, it just, you know, there are some people who swear really well. My husband does. He swears brilliantly. And I swear, and it just sort of sounds a bit, oh, Rachel, you, did you have to do that? <laughs> so to kind of write women who really do it well is, is always quite liberating. So it's more your alter ego than this I don't know, maybe she is a bit. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. No, she was good. I liked her. Good. Liked so her. shall I read a little mm, bit definitely. of Maud? Mm. Frank's name was written in Maud's heart. Or more truthfully, it was tattooed above her right breast, just inside her bra strap. Sometimes when she spoke to him, or while she listened, she placed her hand where the tattoo lay, and it was like sending a message in code. Don't get her wrong. Maud knew Frank didn't love her. The problem was that he had a kind of empathy for everyone. There seemed to be no end to the amount of bad news the man could absorb. His shop was permanently occupied by people who would otherwise be roaming the streets or weeping in bedsits. And women were the worst. Anorexic girls, unmarried mothers, battered wives. Frank was so busy loving other people, he had no room to accommodate the fact that someone might turn round one day and love him straight back. Or maybe he just didn't want to. She thought that sometimes. It had happened, Maud's love, the first time Frank found her a record. Try this, he'd said. Try what, she'd replied. Go on, sit in there, put on the headphones. There's something I want you to hear. But that's an old wardrobe, Frank. I'm not sitting in that. Here, she was wrong, apparently. It was a new listening booth. Yes, this crappy wardrobe with small jewelly birds in the door now housed a velvet chair trimmed with little tassels and a headset so large it was like wearing a hat full of music. So she'd sat on the chair just as Frank asked. She'd shut the door and it was strange. It was the same as hiding when you were a kid. Only this time you weren't surrounded by your mum's dresses and your dad's suits and trying not to breathe in case they found you. It was like hiding inside a record. Time stopped. Tick, tick. I think you'll like this. Frank's voice had boomed from the other side of the door. Tick, tick. Barber, adagio for strings. She'd never even heard of the guy. Maud played deaf leopard. The louder the better. Anything to silence the voice inside her. Where is that girl? Fetch the belt. Why can't she be a nice little girl? 
But Frank played at the record, and it was like walking through a magic door. It was so sad and so simple, it could break your heart. But it didn't. From the softest of beginnings, it built and built as if it were climbing a set of stairs until the violins were practically screaming, and then it stopped. Nothing. Her heart had swooped to her mouth. When the music started again, she was in tears, like a switch had been flicked and her eyes were spouts. Because life goes on, the music told her, even when you think it can't. Yes, there is fear, there is real cruelty, not knowing what the hell, those things are there. But listen, because there is this too, this beauty, the human adventure is worth it after all. As she left that booth, the music was in her heart. The shop was just the same, the past was just the same. But now there was also this, this whatever it was, this truth. It was no less than a small miracle. And Frank had given her that. Was it okay? He'd asked afterwards. How could she say? How can you tell a man with eyes like chocolate drops that by sticking you for eight minutes in a cupboard, he has changed your life? He knelt at her feet, gazing at her from beneath that floppy fringe, well, she assumed he was gazing, and smiling with his soft mouth. So here she was, all these years later. How many nights had she sat with him in England's glory as he told another story about a customer who needed his help? How many times had she fetched a takeaway and pushed open the door of his shop, pretending a date had not turned up? How many Christmases, New Year's, birthdays, one day, they'd jack it all in, move out of the city altogether. Real love was not a bolt out of the blue. It was not the playing of violins. It was like anything else. It was a habit of the heart. You got up every day, and you put it on, same as your pants, your boots, and you kept treading the constant path. That's more. <laughs> You mentioned in, in that reading about the uh, transformative power of mm -hmm. music, and actually that's a very poignant bit because it fills a, a big silence within Maud. But there are some very funny set pieces as well. There's a part where uh, some friends of Frank, who oh, yeah. are having a bit of a tough time in their relationship, they've got yeah. young children, they're not really connecting on any level, no. and he gives them Shalimar, a night to remember. He does. And they don't, really don't want to listen to it. Do no, they? They, they like prog rock. They don't yeah. really like um, that kind of thing. And actually, they put it on, and yeah. they do have a night to remember. They do. Mm. It works. <laughs> this is fiction. <laughs> <laughs> but also, the, the other word that you mention in, in that reading is silence. Mm -hmm. And in fact, this book, I think, is as much about silence as it is about music, because there are big silences in it. Yes. Um, there is this silence between Maud and Frank, who never yeah. really discuss their, mm -hmm. you know, their affection for each other, particularly with Maud. There is also a big a silence within uh, Frank as well, because mm -hmm. he doesn't, he, he's not very self-aware, is he? He's got all these silences yeah. around him, yeah. and he fills them with music without ever really examining himself, doesn't he? He does, he does. He's, he's maybe a typical healer, I don't know, in that he, he is great at looking after other people, and he has a huge wound of his own, which is maybe why he is helping other people, that he can't really address. So, um, 
His journey is really to decide whether or not, even though he's kind of quite happy with the way things are, whether or not he's going to be brave enough to try and get bigger, really. Uh, but silence, yes, I think si I mean, silence is very important in music anyway, just because I think uh, there is a chapter called where, where Peg, Frank's mother, who's very influential on him as a child, um, explains why silence is so important in music, you know, that it comes out of nothing and it goes to nothing, but also that there is silence inside music too, just as there is in that barber bit that I read about, where, and it's actually the silence sort of somehow allows you sometimes to just take everything in. It's sort of hidden, it's magical, and it's the same for me with dialogue or with characters, where, because we don't say everything. We can't do it. Sometimes it's too scary, sometimes it's, um, I mean, it's often too scary. Sometimes it's just too difficult, sometimes there isn't time. So I always think of it in those instances of um, when my dad was, was terribly ill and, um, and we really, really knew that he was dying and he didn't, we didn't really ever, ever talk about it because, I don't know, I think it just wasn't British somehow. Uh, you know, not British to talk about it, not British to die either. And... Um, we went for a walk, he and I, not very far because he couldn't get very far, but as far as the uh, church. And we stopped at the gates and he said to me, out of the blue, how do you think they get the coffin through? I'm sh you know, and I should have said, do you want to talk about dying? But because it was so out of the blue, this remark of my dad's, and... Um, I so didn't want him to feel any pain. I didn't want him to die. I just didn't deal with it. I just said, gosh, I think we should head back. And we did. And he never mentioned it again. We, uh, yeah, I missed it. But that is so real, that mm. seems to me, that we miss those moments. And not, you know, not for any want of goodness or love, but simply because it was too difficult. I mean, the silence that you're describing there is actually sort of quite, a, and, and also in the book as well, uh, is, is a sort of a, a spiritual silence, I yeah, think. Yeah. But there is also this other silence in the mm. book, which is much more menacing, mm. and that's the silence of a kind of complicity, I think, because the, the bigger story that is going on mm. is that there is a, a sort of faceless developer yeah. moving into Unity Street. Great mm -hmm. name, by the way. Um, because they are very united. Yeah. And they, are, they know that they're going to get pushed out, and they resist it, yeah. but there is this sort of inexorable um, march of, of well, I, I don't want to call it progress because I'm not sure it is progress. No. But they come in, these developers, mm -hmm. and by hook or by crook, they get each one of these people out, don't they? Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, we were all complicit in that kind of silence, I think, in the 1980s and 1990s when all our high streets became yeah. sort of faceless and all the same. Yeah. And so, did that kind of uh, strand for the book? come from your experience of that music shop in Sirencester, of seeing things swept away, it partly, feeling partly sad. It did. Partly it did. I mean, I'm not, it's not that I'm against progress. I, I, you know, pr progress is inevitable, you know, and there are things from the 80s that I would rather not have back. You know, measles, things like that. You know, well, you know it was a bit earlier, wasn't it? But, you know, there are lo lots of things. But I think it's just that sometimes I think the fact that we are now kind of inhabiting a space where you can have everything without really even, you know, thinking about, really without thinking about it. 
um, you know, you can shop, you can have music, you can have food, you can have food from wherever you want. Actually, you can't have that where we live, because we live out in the middle of nowhere, mm. and nobody will deliver to where we live. So my children <laughs> think that's appalling. But I think that's really good. But um, you've got to be careful, I think, what you take away. And uh, even though in this book a lot gets taken away, and there is an ending where everybody does through kind of one enormous effort, try to get something back. I think in, in real life, it's not always that easy. So for me, it, I mean, if the book is about anything, I think it's about you have to be careful what you choose to lose. Frank is the main character, and I mean, he looms large in, in lots of ways right yes. throughout the book. And he's the sort of pivot around which everybody uh, sort of dances. There are some fantastic female characters. You mentioned Peg, yes. who's Frank's mother. Yes. She's wonderful. She's this bohemian, yes. pretty foul-mouthed, actually. She's, she's another great, one. Isn't she? yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but she's quite emotionally distant. And she uses music, I think, almost as a replacement for affection for Frank. Yeah. That he's brought up in this kind of wild house by the sea which she's inherited, obviously, obviously through family money, you know, way, way back. And, uh, but she, she's the kind of woman who would be brilliant to go out on a pub crawl with, mm. but not perhaps as a mother. And um, so Frank, through various, I think, uh, failures of hers, is left as a man not trusting that he's worthy of being loved, which I think is pretty low on my list of things to feel. And that's a huge battle for a man to go on, I think, to find that they are worthy of being loved, because it means you've got to really put yourself out where you don't want to go. So really, you know, Peg is a marvelous, colorful, robust, mm. swearing, smoking creature, but um, she, she really has her faults. And Frank is very, as he, as he gets older, I mean, he's really in love with Peg because she's so sort of boisterous, isn't yes. she? And, and actually, her music uh, spans all kinds of genres. It does. And, you know, she That's really where he gets his love of it from. Yes. to listen to it in a most marvellous way. But actually, as he gets older, he just becomes totally embarrassed by her, doesn't he? And he wants normality. He wants a mother who yes. will make him tea. Yes, and, that's, and actually, that's, that's the sort of great schism in Frank's life, isn't it? It that is. He never really sort of connects the two. Yeah. Mm. Uh, the other woman that comes in, uh, another great character, is oh, yeah. Ilse. Ilse yes. Brachman. Yes. Um, so tell us about Ilse Brachman. She is, I wanted to have a character in the book who's very, very mysterious. Who is it? What is the line that, you know, there are two plots? One is a stranger comes to town yes. and the other is a man goes on a journey. And I thought, well, I've done a man goes on a journey. <laughs> so I better do a stranger comes to town. And um, so in she comes. But she, she doesn't actually come into the shop in the conventional way in that she does. She appears to be staring in at the window and then she just falls flat over. And uh, that came about because uh, about a year, I mean, no, a few years ago when I was writing these, this bit of the book, I kind of had her wandering in, and nothing I did for her seemed quite extraordinary enough. And then one day in our house, it was quite wintry, somebody knocked on the door and said, do you know there's a dead old lady outside your house? To which I said no, um, and rushed out. And there was indeed a lady, not old and not dead, but like this, lying outside our house, very, very young, as it turned out, 
just right outside the house, and we do live in the middle of nowhere. Um, what a gift for a novelist. Well, yeah, I suppose, yes. Well, I put her in the book, so, you know. Uh, I didn't mention that, though. And, um, yeah, that made me think of the other story I told you. I've got a slight sideways thing. This is me about being a writer. I met a man in the hotel where I was staying overnight this morning in the lift who said to me, what do you do? And I said, I'm a writer. I don't normally say that. I, don't, I think I was feeling a bit confident. And uh, he said, are you J.K. Rowling? <laughs> so I said, yes. <laughs> anyway, back, back to the girl outside our house. And um, I ran to her and knelt down um, beside her because I happened to be the first one there. And then, you know, I don't know if it ever happened where you realize that you've actually got to do something because you are the person nearest to hand. So I kind of went into my best casualty mode. And I said, stay with me. <laughs> and she, she quite rightly kept her eyes closed. <laughs> and, then, and then eventually she did just begin to come out, but she was completely out of it, completely. And we did, she did gradually come back. And I kind of gleaned a little bit about her and why, she, why, why it might have happened. But the point was that I felt a very strong connection with this young girl that I'd seen sort of, you know, almost in her purest form, just, you know, out of it, empty, just... And the connection that I felt with her felt very... Um, I mean, it's visceral. So I thought that's a very interesting way for Frank to meet a woman is that she faints outside the shop and he brings her back to life. But for this time, it's not through music, it's actually through picking her up and carrying her because what else can he do into the shop? So it forces him into a position where he has to take on another human being. But actually, you say it, it's not through music, but it becomes through music, It becomes it? through music, Because he, yes. give, he, he does this sort of rather marvellous thing where, by, he gives her music lessons, not in any conventional sense. No. Uh, and she pays him yes. to do this, and they meet and they talk about music, and he gives her music and explains why she might enjoy it. And this could have been an exercise in mansplaining. It really could have been, but yeah. it's not, because no. you put into Frank's mouth words of such beauty mm -hmm. that you don't ever feel that you're being uh, patronised. No. Or, or made to look at something that really perhaps you don't want to have a look at. So how no. difficult was but that it to do? It was very tricky and it took a long time to work out, but, but basically they, she, she says, I don't like music. So for me, I mean, it took me a long time to work that out, but it's, so then I'm putting the reader and Ilsa on an even keel. So if you don't like music, it doesn't matter because Frank is going to make you like it. So then I've got everybody kind of working together. And then, of course, any lessons that the two of them have has to be more about the relationship than it does about the music. But because he cannot hear the music inside her, she is the first person he's ever met. He looks and he thinks, I just, I don't get you. I don't understand. So he's constantly trying to find music that she might like, which means then that I have a field day because I can find all sorts of extraordinary things. And because we're not going with one genre, we're kind of constantly playing with lots of different things. So I'm, now, I'm going to forget now what he brings, but he might have a lesson. Oh, I can't even remember what... He, there was, there's one where he brings her... Uh, 
Purcell, so Dido and Aeneas, which is a kind of extraordinarily heartbreaking song at the end where Dido is lamenting. But he also brings her James Brown. He and puts the Sex in Pistols. Sex Pistols mm. come in. Mm. So he's just caught Miles Davis constantly crossing, crossing genre, trying to find the thing that she wants, which means that I can then play with a reader and we can have a bit of an adventure through music, but always, always rooting it in relationships and tea. Tea's always good to it, to kind of, uh, you know, just so that you've got things around that we all, all know, so we never feel as exclusive. I mean, there's a huge, there's a huge amount of music, a variety of music in this book. But the thing I think that unites it all is this energy mm -hmm. that's got pulsing all the way through mm -hmm. it. And I wondered, were there bits of music that you selected that you threw out and you thought, no, this is just not going to cut it yeah, in the novel? Yeah. I did. I what, had to get what rid of... What were they? Oh, I can't remember. <laughs> there was so much. I mean, I had to just... The other thing was I had to do so much research. Uh, in order to write it, because as I said, I'm not a musician, so at the beginning I was thinking, how am I going to write a character who knows everything about music when I don't? So I did do so much reading, and in the end I had a pile of notes about that big, and a book that was about you know mm. this big, and then I thought, this is ridiculous, this is really not working, and I'm not being true to me anymore, so I then abandoned everything and just went back to doing the thing that Frank is always telling people to do, which is to lie on the floor, put your headphones on, and just listen. Um, and that, for me, was a really good point to get to, because then I could write about what, what I saw or what I felt, but, you know, kind of finding my way through it. And also, it's a bit of a gift, which we don't do, just to really allow yourself to get to know a piece of music without washing up or driving the car, you know, just lie down and listen. Because none of the music, I don't think any of the music is background, it's not lift music, it's not background music, it forces no. you to listen. And actually the way that Frank talks about it, I could hear lots of this music playing around in my head as Frank was talking about it. And I thought that was, I have to say, I thought that was very skillful. Thank you. Writing. The other thing that, is, that, that you've absolutely nailed is you've got a great ear for dialogue. And I know that you've written, I think, about 30 plays for radio. I have. And I wondered what, which came first. Did your ear, have you always had a good ear for dialogue, therefore you wrote radio plays? Mm -hmm. Or did you write radio plays and the ear for dialogue sort of came through that? Because if you, if you mess up on radio, mm -hmm. it really does show. Well, it does, because all we've really got is... All we can do is listen, so a word that is out of place really pings on radio. Uh, but I think partly my love of dialogue came, well, came from two places. One, I love listening to people, and I really love, I think we, we speak in rhythm. You know, I mean, you know, we don't speak in poetry necessarily, we're not doing kind of couplets, but we use repetition, we use little words like, you know, you know. Uh, we, we puncture, we shape, and that, you know, the kind of, ordinary way in which we speak to one another. We use names in a very specific way. Uh, those are all kind of um, things I like to pick up on. Also, I did start off as, um, even though I've written since I was really, really young, uh, always, always using, you know, writing things down, trying to understand things through making stories out of them, I then became an actress in my 20s. So I was lucky, I was lucky because it was the period when we had rep. And I did sh lots of Shakespeare, Chekhov, Ibsen, you know, the kind of a lot of those classics. 
And uh, I don't know that they quite rub off, but I think, you know, you begin to have a, an ear for, I respond to that the, the rhythm of Shakespeare, I really respond to it. So when you're conjuring up these characters then, what comes first, the kind of visual impression of people or the voice? Because they've all got very, very strong voices. There's yeah. never any danger in this book that you could uh, muck up one voice with another. You know exactly who's speaking just by looking at it. I think that's partly though radio, because in radio you have to really make sure that all the, not, the characters are not all speaking with the same voice. You know, you have to make sure that they... I don't, I don't... You know, it's a kind of subtle thing, but sometimes I think you actually even find it by... You take your character and you think, I'm going to walk around like Frank. You don't let anybody see you doing this, obviously. <laughs> but, um, did you untie your shoelaces Yes, <laughs> I did do a bit of stomping. Because sometimes if you just get into the way that somebody moves and sits, you know, it very much affects how they speak. Uh, but in radio, it is very, very important that they, you know, people speak differently. And so, I, I mean, I think that just, I instinctively do that with, the, probably with a novel anyway. And when you've written something, when you've written a chapter or, you know, you've written the first draft or whatever, are you speaking those lines out loud? Some authors do, mm -hmm. they really, yeah. they kind of march around, don't they? Yeah. Speaking them, yes. to find out whether they've got that kind of authenticity yes. about them. Do I you do, do that? I do do that. I mean, the thing is that I write and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite to the... I mean, so many times before it's a first draft. And I make so many mistakes, and I would never hand in a draft. You know, a first draft for me is probably about the 400th draft, really. The little sideways story to that, to that is that my, when I was having quite... Because I, I always have a hard time writing as well. It's, it's never easy. And uh, there are some days where I think, I really, really can't do it. And there are some days I think, it's really, really not working. And I don't know why I do just keep going. Um, but it can be hard. And last year, when it was especially hard, my husband was telling me about James Joyce, who I have to say is not related to me. <laughs> Though, again, Shame. I know, again, an another lie recently. I was at another, uh, at a very posh festival. Not that this isn't a posh festival, obviously. <laughs> uh, in Geneva. <laughs> and... Um, I was really out of my depth. The, the writers there, I, was, I, I really like writers, but I, I'm sorry. Sometimes I think writers talk way too seriously about themselves. As if, you know, you think, you've written a book. It's really, really good. But, you know, let's get everything in context. Anyway, there are a lot of very earnest writers. And I felt very out of my depth. I really didn't like doing the events that I did. And then somebody in the audience said, are you related to James Joyce? Oh. So I said, yes. <laughs> I'm his granddaughter, <laughs> I said. <laughs> and which probably makes me, I don't know quite how old A that is. Serial makes liar. Me. Yeah, I, know. <laughs> I, I don't normally lie, but I've just been caught twice. Anyway, the point of this is so, uh, James Joyce, apparently, one day, this is the story my husband told me, a friend went in to see him and said, How are you today, James? And James Joyce said, Oh, not so good. And uh, his friend said, Why? What's wrong? How many words have you written today? And James Joyce said, Well, I've written eight. And his friend said, well, that's really, really good for you. And James Joyce said, yes, but I don't know which order they go in. <laughs> and I have days like those. I think we're not all quite relieved you don't write like James Joyce, to be honest. Um, I, I, we're going to end the session quite soon. And um, I'm going to end the session in a slightly unusual way because 
I was reading something about you and you were talking about new beginnings. Oh. And in fact, you had your, your first novel, The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry, yeah. published when you were 50. Yeah. And you've mentioned that you've done things before that. You've written an awful lot for radio. You, you're an actor. And I wondered whether this, this thing about coming, you know, to, not to success, but literary success later mm. on in your life, has, gives your books a real optimism and a buoyancy, despite the often quite sad subject matter. This, yeah. this could have been a very sad book it could. for all kinds of reasons. <coughs> and in fact, the ending is not without its sadness, but it isn't. It's a very buoyant book. I think. It's a very happy book. Uh, it felt very important to write a happy book at the moment. Mm. I felt I needed to write a happy book, and I thought probably if I'm going to have books in a bookshop, then I thought maybe I'd like it to, to be a happy one in there because I think we need to be reminded of those things and also the kind of things that can happen just when small communities of people do just stand together. So it, ha it has a ridiculously upbeat ending for which I can only apologize, but it just <laughs> felt really necessary. But would you, would you describe yourself as somebody who is optimistic and upbeat? No, I'm terrible. I'm really, really <laughs> terrible. I think it's because I'm quite introverted and quiet and probably quite detailed. Things. So I just imagine the worst possible outcome nearly all the time. But I'm married to an extrovert uh, who keeps telling me he's getting more introverted. And I think, really? Come on. <laughs> You've been talking for half an hour. You know, you, um, so I'm not by nature, probably. But I, you know, when you're, you're writing, writing Rachel doesn't have to be diary mm. Rachel, you know? So I do write a diary and that's, I would never show that to anyone. But you know, what I want to share, what I want to communicate, what I want to explore is probably a bigger thing. Well, I thought it was a, a beautiful book and Thank I read you. it almost at one swallow. Gosh. I really, well really did enjoy mm. it. Now we've just got um, a little bit of time, I think. Right, now, would anybody like to ask a question to Rachel? I'm sure you would, and I know it's always really quite difficult to be the first person over there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there's a roving mic. Um, good morning. Rachel, firstly, can I say that I love your books? Thank you. Um, secondly, um, because we now have all these digital devices to read, yes. um, I could look up the number of times that you mentioned words. Oh, gosh. And what, oh. of course, green appears a lot yes, as a yes. color. Yeah. The other color that comes through is blue. Uh -huh. And yeah. so when you search on the Kindles, you see that blue appears 49 times in your book, and green also appears 49 times. Oh. And I wondered if the, the color blue, we know green had the specific... Um, yes, Ilsa has a green coat, so that's very definitely there, yes. So I wondered about the color blue, whether, um, what, if there was any deliberate use of that in the book? Gosh, what a brilliant question. <laughs> it's deliberate entirely, the number of times that blue and green come up, <laughs> definitely. And <laughs> um, I like blue, actually, as a color. I'm very happy with blue. Blue, I mean, blue is kind of jazzy anyway, isn't mm. it? And blue's very good for Frank. So I think it was an instinctive thing, you know? But it's a really good question. I've, and I know when Harold Fry came out, the American author wrapped me on the knuckles a bit because she said, you're always mentioning pink. So I've obviously advanced in some way. <laughs> I don't know what color will be next, though. 
Not black, we hope. No, that, you'll I reserve don't that for think your so. diaries. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, have we got any other any more questions? Oh, good. Okay. I was just wondering, you said you did an awful lot of research. Whether yes. you actually spoke to any musicians about yeah. uh, about which pieces would go with which kind of moods and things, or if you yes. relied on your instinct for that. I did do that. I actually asked all my friends to tell me favourite pieces of music and why. And also when we when where we lived before, we used to, when the children were young, uh, we used to have a New Year's party every year where Paul, my husband, who's a brilliant cook, cooked. I, I laid the table. I mean, I'm lame here. I laid the table and looked after everyone. I was backstage work. But anyway, the point of this is that everybody had to bring a piece of music with them that they really loved. And the deal was, we'll feed you and then we'll play, we'll all play our favorite music. And if you want to talk about why you love it, you can, and if you don't want to, you don't have to. So a lot of the music in my mind is often now associated with that New Year thing and p things that people brought. And just one in particular was my dad's choice, which is in the book, which was Duke Ellington's Satin Doll, instrumental version. Um, because he was a jazz drummer in his youth and he brought this piece of music. And as I've said, he was, he was very, very ill. It was his last New Year. And he, he really couldn't speak very well. And so I excused, I just didn't even ask him to explain why. And he left early. And my friend, a very good friend of mine, said, you really should have asked him to explain. And he told her. And the reason, and it's in the book, that he loves um, Satin Doll is because as a jazz musician, Everybody in the band gets to play, mm. Mm. but you also have to support. You know, so you're allowed, you have your one moment of being center stage, and then you've got to go in the background and all stand together. And that was why he loved it. And so it's in the book. So uh, it, there's lots of pieces of music like that. Uh, you know, for me, it's the same with Harold Fry. I kind of always feed in something that means something to me that I respond to, you know, in some way. I think it's otherwise not entirely interesting to me. Got some here, yeah. Okay. Hello, Rachel. Hello. Um, just say we love your books as well. Oh, I thoroughly you. enjoyed the music shop. Thank um, you. We really hope there's going to be a soundtrack to come out. With well, this as is well. what I keep forgetting: is that at the front of the oh. book it mentions the Spotify music shop playlist, so you can, if you're really clever, listen to the music on Spotify as you read the book. That was not my idea. Um, <laughs> But it is there, and I always forget to say it. But actually, so on, the, on, the, on the Penguin um, website as yes. well, there is, there's, there's some pieces of music which have meant an awful lot to you as well. Yes. Uh, there's about sort of seven or eight pieces of music which oh. are really beautiful, including yeah. an Icelandic choir. Yes. Something extraordinary, and I yes. was in bits. It, it, it does, it, it does. You must go mm. and find it. Mm. It's the Icelandic choir. You have to Google something like, well, now. Don't quite know what you said. Let's think. Something like that. <laughs> Icelandic choir, yeah. and uh, it's it's normally a choir of men, I think, singing it. It is a choir and of men. And that's the thing mm. that I think that gets you is that it's they all look so kind of um, rigid, and they're sort of standing, and they're mm. dressed in you know very mm. smart, aren't they? Incredibly smart. And then they sing this piece of music that just breaks your heart. And it's got the combination of angels. The they, they do. Yeah, absolutely beautiful. Now, have we got another question? Okay. I, I love your book, The Music Shop, and, and I've read the other two books, Howl Fry. Yeah. I, I write poetry and I write about music. Oh, do uh, you? It's not a question. It's, and uh, I've, I've run a music 
group in, in, in my job twi two, two times. Have you? Yeah, and, and I also lived in Gloucestershire, so I know the trading, uh -huh. trading uh, <laughs> place where you, where you went. In, oh, in yeah, Stroud, yeah. I lived for 10 years, so it's Stroud. just really, uh, I love your book. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Any more questions? Yes, somebody over there. Hiya, I'm being very brave. <laughs> you are. Just on the, uh, on the theme of um, things that mean a lot to you, I just wondered yeah. if you had a connection to the North East with, um, with the descriptions of Embleton and With Berwick. Queenie, yeah. yeah. I, it was funny because when I was writing Harold Fry, I knew that I wanted Harold's journey to be you know, as, as long as it could, but as irregular as possible. And I knew I had to start, I wanted to start it in Kingsbridge because that's where my husband was born and we know it very well, I know the area. And I'd been through Berwick on the train to Edinburgh as a student to go to the Fringe Festival and something about it had sort of just caught me. So that was where I decided Queenie would be, all well and good. And then the idea came to write the whole story from Queenie's perspective, which did seem an important thing to do to me. So then I thought, oh right, hang on a minute, uh, I don't really know Berwick-upon-Tweed. And I imagined in, in the village where I live, there's a tiny shed of a house which has been abandoned now for years and years and years. But for some reason I thought that's where Queenie lives, that house, but obviously not here. It's got to be near a barrack. So then we started it. This is the brilliant thing about being a writer, is when you decide you have to go to the places mm. you're going to write about. It's just a gift. Uh, and in fact, in, in, in this, I decided we needed to go to Mallorca. <laughs> uh, it doesn't happen in the book, because obviously we didn't need to go to Mallorca. But I thought I needed to go to where Chopin had spent a lot mm. of time write, writing. I didn't really. Anyway, I did need to go to Berwick-upon-Tweed, and uh, we, we, couldn't, we weren't staying in Berwick, but we was, Paul, my husband, said, why don't we go to Craster? He really knew Craster. And I thought, oh, I see. Queenie's heart is going to be near Craster. So, again, I'd been there a few times, went back, really, really love Craster, love walking along the beaches. Nobody there. I just thought, how lucky is this? You know, it was so Very beautiful. Lucky. It really, really responded to that landscape. The openness of it, I really respond to. But we weren't staying in Craster. We were staying a little further on. And then uh, I went for a walk incredibly early in the morning. And there was not just Queenie's heart, but a whole cliff of them. Mm. It was skin prickling. It was sort of like, well, I imagined this, but actually it's real. <laughs> And uh, so I walked around there, and then you know how you want to tell people? Uh, and I fortunately didn't. So we, yeah, we spent, I think, a couple of weekends, then came back again, just spent a lot of time just walking around there. Really loved it. And it felt absolutely right. I felt really good that that's where she lived. Rachel, we're going to have to end it there. So I'd just like to say thanks to our lovely author, and thanks to you, the audience. Thank you. Thank you.